political appointees often leave an administration after the first two years. The pace of departures from the Biden administration at two years, though, is happening at a quickening pace. That's according to a tally by Brookings senior fellow Katie Tempest, who joins me now. Ms. Tempest, good to have you on. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. And we talk about this periodically with you. And the two-year point, though, is when a lot of people leave normally in every administration just to level set, correct? Yeah, generally speaking, turnover is pretty low in year one, and then there's a pretty big uptick in year two. The only exception going back to Ronald Reagan was Donald Trump, and that's because his first year turnover was a whopping 35% off the charts outlier. And then the second year was 31%, which is so quite high. But he's the only one who had a slight downtick in year two. But again, I attribute that to the fact that year one was so incredibly high. And if you go back to Reagan, all the other presidents had very low turnover the first year, and then it bumped up. And for purposes of the count that you did, we're not talking about the entire plum book, but just certain selected subset. And which is that subset? So this subset includes key influential positions in the executive office of the president. And within the executive office of the president, you have what most people know of as the White House staff. But then you also have really important entities like the National Security Council, the Office of Management and Budget, the Council of Economic Advisors, the Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives. It's all the sub-offices. So my sample includes 66 senior staffers. Two of them are confirmed, which would be the OMB director and the director of OIRA and Office of Science and Technology Policy. But generally speaking, these are unconfirmed positions. Presidents choose these people to serve. And he also chooses when they leave. But in the case of Biden, he has only had two what I would call forced resignations. There was one in the first year. and the second year, it was the head of the Office of Science and Technology Policy, Eric Lander, who was forced out in part because of his behavior and his treatment of staff. I guess there was verbal abuse that was reported in The Washington Post. But generally, most of Biden's departures have been kind of their own choice. They've chosen to move on to the private sector. They've been promoted to other positions, which I count as turnover because it then requires that they fill the position they've left, causes a disruption, decreases efficiency and all of those things. So some people are promoted. Most people depart for other reasons, kind of private reasons, and move on to the private sector or to nonprofits. But these 66 are the jobs that have the real policy influence, probably more so than, say, you know, the agriculture secretary or VA secretary, where the big policies still come from the White House. Exactly. And what's happened over time, if you looked at the presidency, say, since Eisenhower, you'd find that over time, presidents have internalized expertise in the White House and power has become centralized in the White House, which has come at the cost of the cabinet secretaries. The one thing I would say that's unique about the Biden administration and the cabinet secretaries is that he does tend to involve them more than his predecessors. I've heard that there are more cabinet meetings and oftentimes he brings in cabinet secretaries for press conferences and things of that nature. So it seems as though he is trying to kind of reverse the tide of cabinet secretaries having less influence and actually bringing them in more frequently. And getting back to the 66 in the second year here, of course, Ron Klain, the chief of staff of the White House, famously has departed. But that's almost always a two-year stint, isn't it, for the most part? Well, yeah. And let me just make one clarification. So there are 66 senior staffers, and of those 66, 21 departed in year two, five departed in year one. So it's not 66 departures in year two. It's the whole sample of influential staffers is 66. And Ron Klain, technically, his departure was announced the day after the two-year mark. So he is technically my first year three departure. His departure does not tabulate into the year two. All right. And so how does the second year final net Biden Mm -hmm. departure rate compare with other presidents? For Biden himself, it was a huge uptick. It was more than quadruple. 
But I would say that compared to other presidents, he's sort of back in line with President Bush and he's closest to President Clinton. The two presidents who have had more turnover at this point in their administration were Ronald Reagan and Donald J. Trump. So he's third overall, but his numbers are much closer to that of Clinton and Bush. Obama was very low. George H.W. Bush was very low, but he's more in line with President Clinton. We're speaking with Katie Tempest. She's a non-resident senior fellow at Brookings, specializing in governance studies. And do we know what causes these different rates? I mean, what do we infer from this? What are the lessons here? Well, I think that there was a huge uptick from between year one and year two for Biden because year one was so low. So statistically, if it's very low the first year, you can expect a bigger uptick in year two. But it's also the case that you might recall a lot of these people who have left worked on the campaign They went through that horrible period where there was a contested election, which required a lot of probably 20-hour working days. They had a truncated transition. The first year, even though they were able to attain some legislative success, the second year they were the same legislative success. It's just been exhausting. It's been challenging. So even though they had majorities in the House and the Senate, they were razor thin, and it meant that every legislative victory had to be full of compromise and negotiation and pretty much narrow wins. You know, also, you have to remember, they took office at a time when it's right at the point where they were distributing COVID vaccines. So COVID is still with us. They've, you know, that's been an ongoing challenge. Inflation has been a challenge. Russia invading Ukraine has posed a new challenge. It's never easy in these jobs. But I would say that the two years plus the part during the transition and the campaign itself was incredibly arduous. And so I can see a lot of these people running out of gas and, you know, just needing a break. These jobs are some of the most stressful jobs in the country, I would argue. So you do see turnover. Again, it's in line with President Clinton. And so it's not out of the ordinary. If it were my hope, I wish that people, once they agreed to work for the president, they would stay all four years unless the president didn't want them to. Only because four years goes by quickly. This is an opportunity for them to make a difference. And, you know, it's not like you're the CEO of PepsiCo where you can stay eight years, 10 years, whatever. This is a finite period of time in which you can have tremendous influence. And from your perspective, you're doing good for the country. These jobs are probably fun and exhilarating for three months, then maybe just exhilarating for six months. And then they get to be kind of a drag because often they're five, six Certainly five-day, six-day, sometimes seven-day work weeks, correct? Oh, yeah. And if you're in the communications part of this staff, it's 24-7, right? Because the media is 24-7. You're constantly reacting to news around the world. It's constant. I would say, you know, for all of them, not just communications, it's high stress. It's probably seven days a week for most of them at the highest level. I'm talking these, these are the most senior staff that I focus on. And I would say I'm guessing they're all working seven days a week. And, you know, everything is so consequential, right? Like you talk about prescription drugs or getting medicine for diabetics and decreasing the price. These things all have huge consequences, whether to assist Ukraine to try to defend themselves. How many tanks do you send over? Everything is consequential. The debt ceiling right now that they're dealing with. You know, none of these issues are things that it won't matter if they don't deal with. They all matter. (laughs) The stress has got to be just beyond what anybody can imagine. And so if you look back to, you know, going back all the way to 1981, you do see that there's a fair amount of turnover in these senior positions. And to me, I wish it wasn't that way, but I think it's just the reality that people cannot endure that much stress and those long hours for so long. And I wanted to ask you about one particular position that's highly visible, and that's the person that stands there at the press conferences in the White House mm-hmm. trying to answer, well, not really having the answers that the press is looking mm-hmm. for and getting some really dumb questions, frankly, if you listen to these things that run on for an hour or so. That job looks particularly stressful because it often sounds like the person doing the answering is not really 
in the meetings where the answers are generated. And so they're kind of making up what they think they are expected to say. Right. And you hit on two things. One is that Jen Psaki was one of the most visible year two departures and had that position. And the other thing, just to talk about the role of the press secretary, is that they actually are segregated to some extent because they are not involved in all of the meetings. Because if they were, then when someone said, you know, what does Ron Klain think about aid to Ukraine? They would have to say because they were in that meeting, whereas they can sort of plead ignorance of things because they're not included in some of those high level, more political, probably more charged meetings. And so press secretaries, you know, going way back have been separated to some extent and they kind of are allowed information on a need to know basis. And that is deliberate. It's strategic. And of course, none of them end up poor when they leave those jobs. So there's there's that. Yeah. I mean, oftentimes if they're good at what they did, they can find more lucrative jobs in the private sector or in, in the media themselves. But those jobs are not easy either. So they're just working under different pressures and responding to different pressures. But I'm sure their hours are still extraordinarily high. And just a final question, what's the appeal for those that come in in year three and four, if a lot of the important work has been done in years one and two, and especially in two-term presidencies, where you might be in year seven and eight, where things really the gas is out of the bag there. Yeah, well, I think a lot of people, if they're committed to the candidate, now president, they just want the opportunity to work for that individual. So it's more out of kind of like a loyalty and a desire to make a difference. And in year three, there are still things going on. You might be somebody that has more political savvy. So you're brought in year three because that's when presidents start to look to the reelection campaign. And so they need somebody who can provide specific advice. How will pursuing this initiative, how might it affect the reelection campaign? Um, Where should we make this announcement? You know, which state across the country is the most valuable to make this announcement? So somebody that has kind of those political skills can be extremely helpful And if you are a committed Democrat, if you like President Biden, this is an opportunity of a lifetime, even though it's year three. Got it. Katie Tempest is non-resident senior fellow at Brookings. She specializes in governance studies. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, you're welcome. I'm happy to be here. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your shows. Leadership Today especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt, all took care of of people with intellectual disabilities and 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 physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they they basically were in d- direct care. And and I will say, and on a obviously we'll say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. 
Um, they're they're really heroes, and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone, and I thought, well, you know, I'll take a look at it and see, see you know, throw send in my information, and lo and behold, I I, I get hired, and um, I learn. Uh, every day almost something from especially from our athletes uh we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in washington dc and you know uh terrell who who works in in our mailroom who comes by with packages and deliveries uh if you're having a day that's you know getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in but terrell comes by always happy always enthused uh has a has a good story like it can just turn a day around for you and 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 you think of i i you know so often when he'll walk away i'll be like you know whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know stressing me out and come on you know like look at look at terrell like he he, he faces everything with optimism and 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 i've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the united states and globally you see people who have had everything stacked against them you know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from the athletes of special Olympics that uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. uh, We get more than we give. Uh, working with Special Olympics, it, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I, I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful and and uh, I mean, we work hard and you know, we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day but uh man you see it, it and 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 the inclusion and the at special olympics no one's excluded you know no, right. no one's excluded yeah. everyone is equal at special olympics it, and you know in a country that's quite divided on so many lines politically and uh, socially uh, economically race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot but you go to special olympics and everyone's involved everyone's welcome everyone's equal and I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics and experienced the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that won't help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics Ways to get involved, uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials, 
Um, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I'd mentioned earlier, um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together. Uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding of, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out, uh, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.